0: And the scripture reading this morning is from 1 Peter 3, chapters 1 to 7. We've been l- looking at 1 Peter. Today we're looking at chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. It's the reading of God's word. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husband, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty, beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. But this is how the holy woman who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Amen. This is a reading of God's word. Please join me. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks this morning, and every week we come to you. We hear, We uh, we cry out to you, and we. Say, we need to hear a word from you. We've heard a lot of words about this week, a lot of words. A lot of those words are words of anxiety and anger, confusion, sorrow. But Father, we need to hear your word to us. We need you to speak to us. So I pray, Lord, through your word, through your messenger, though fragile, you would speak. I pray that you would help us to hear not what we want to hear, but help us to hear your words. Help me to speak not what I want to speak, but your words that you want to speak to your children. So I pray God that you would speak to us. Use me, Lord. Help us to hear your precious, your imperishable word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, every week, uh I every week during this pandemic, I think, man, this is the worst, this is as bad as go- it's gonna get. Things are getting much better. Every week I'm I'm surprised. It's like a trap door that unleashes, and I feel like, man, we are in a in a worse place than maybe we were the previous week. I wonder, you know, what, w- w- why, what's happening? And what gives me consolation, I hope what gives you consolation, is this this word, this letter that God wrote to us. It was first written by Peter to churches in Asia, but it was written. To give us hope, and what First Peter tells us, and what First Peter tells Christians today who are experiencing kind of chaos and disorientation, is that the Bible tells us that heaven is my is my home. This is not my homeland, right here. This is not my home. Uh, I'm on a journey to my true home, to my true place. My citizenship is in heaven. On the one hand. Uh, I'm called to seek the peace of the city and to love the place I am in. But on the other hand, I am to to realize it's not my true home. It's not my everything. Uh, I'm going to my true home. It's a place of perfect beauty. It's a place of perfect justice. It's a perfect place of infinite love. And I'm going there. If you forget that heaven is your home, you are or if heaven is not your home, you are going to experience this time and you're going to get angry. You are going to get disoriented. You're going to get jaded and cynical if you don't have heaven as your home. On the other hand, if your focus is only exclusively on heaven, you're not going to be faithful to the place God called you to, which is right now in this country here. So what Peter is saying to us is that we have to live in tension. We have to live in this tension of the already not yet, of the fact that heaven is my home, but now I'm called to live faithfully in this place that I'm in. And what Peter, 1 Peter is about is how to live faithfully in midst of that tension. We need to live faithfully in midst of this tension that we're feeling at this moment. That's why we're looking at 1 Peter. One thing about this pandemic is that it's strained a lot of relationships. Today we're going to talk about how Peter talks to us about relationships, specifically marriages. And we need to hear that word right now, especially during this time. This pandemic has strained a lot of relationships because we're at home. Everyone's anxious. And it makes... Marriages and relationships, if you're living with a roommate, it makes it really tough. Everyone's on edge. Everyone's around each other all the time. And it's difficult. That's why we need this word this morning. This morning, Peter talks to Christians living in a a marriage about principles of how to live faithfully in the midst of those, especially during difficult times. We're going to look at this passage this morning, and I want to apply it not just to marriage relationships, but to any kind of relationship. And Peter gives us wisdom of how a Christian should have a new way of relating to people, a new way of relating to people. We're going to talk about three ways, new ways of relating to people, that when we do it, especially in times of anxiety and stress... It will give us, uh, it will renew our relationships. And those three things are a new way with power, a new kind of beauty, and a new way to love. Peter gives us three principles of how a Christian should now relate to people. The first thing I want to talk about is a new way with power. Uh, we've been looking at this letter that Peter wrote to first century Christians living in Asia Minor. And he calls them, and the theme of this whole series is exile. He calls them throughout this passage, throughout this letter, exiles. And these were non-Jewish people who probably became Christians and remained in their homeland. Yet he calls them exiles because heaven is now their home. They have a whole new way of relating to everything and everyone. And in in this passage, he's specifically talking about a difficult situation where a woman becomes a Christian, but her husband did not. He's specifically speaking of the situation. A woman receives the gospel, but now she's married to a non-believer. So what is she supposed to do? How is she supposed to relate to him? In the Roman world, men dominated the society. The wives were expected to believe in everything their husbands believed in. So whatever God they worshipped, the wives were just assumed; they were expected to also worship that God. So what were Christian women to do? Uh, notice the nuance of what Peter is saying. He doesn't say, women, just follow your husband's beliefs, whatever they are. That would have been conforming to their culture. Peter, Peter does not say that. On the other hand... Peter doesn't say, leave your unbelieving husbands behind. Just get divorced or don't pay no mind to them. Don't don't listen to them at all. He doesn't say that either. That would have created a divided household, a hostile household, or a broken household. Peter doesn't say that either. What does he say? In verse 1, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Peter asks wives, believing wives, to be subject to their unbelieving husbands. Submission was part of the ancient world, but it's not simply a cultural thing. All throughout the Bible from Genesis, submission is a God thing. Submission is a God thing. The best example of that, submission doesn't mean inferiority. The best example of that is God himself. God is Trinity, which is God is one God. But in the Godhead are three persons, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Each is God. Each is not the other. There's one God. That's the mystery of the Trinity. But as God comes to save the world, there is a way that the Father, Son, and the Spirit work to accomplish salvation. Namely, the Father has the plan and he sends the Son. What does it say about the Son? The Son submits himself to the plan of the Father. That's why all throughout the Gospels, Jesus is saying, he talks about about being sent by the Father, listening to the Father. He submits himself to the Father even when it hurts. That's the, that's the idea of Jesus being equal with God the Father, yet submitting to him. It's not that one is greater than the other. But think about what Peter is saying to believing women. He doesn't just say, submit to your husbands and that's it. Again, li- listen to the nuance. He says, submit yourselves to your unbelieving husbands, but what does he say? Peter advocates for a different power dynamic, a different way of having power. In our culture today, we think of power as force, the power to decide things, the power to, uh, add a seat, add a, a judge to the Supreme Court, the power, the power to get our own way in a relationship, the power to make a final binding decision. That's power in our culture. But Peter advocates for a different kind of power. Listen to what Peter says. He says to Christian wives that he asks them by their respectful conduct, by their purity and their grace, that they were, would be able to win without a word your husbands when they see your respectful and pure conduct. There's a power that can threaten and condemn, but that doesn't change people's hearts. But there's another power. Some people call it soft power. And it's a power that's able to persuade and convince. And that's a power that changes people's minds and their hearts. And Peter's saying that's a greater power than brute force. Peter advocates for this in the second chapter of 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2.12, Peter tells Christians to use that they their witness will not be so much so their words. But their life would be so extraordinary and exemplary and that they would have a life of such good works that non-Christians would see it and they would praise God. Peter all throughout this letter is telling Christians, Christians, the way to win people over is not through your words and not through your force. But by the goodness of your lives, you're going to persuade people. Madeline L'Engle, she talks about this with Christian Christian witness. She says this, We draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. Madeline L'Engle says that we don't convince non-Christians through telling them they're wrong, but by showing them the beauty of the face of God, the light of God, so that they would, with all their heart, want to see it. You've probably been on social media. I'm going to talk about that throughout this sermon where you've read flame threats on social media. Flame threats are when people are, often people who don't know each other, are arguing with each other online, trying to convince each other, ri- ridiculing each other, insulting each other. And usually in a flame thread, you never come across an argument and the other person says, hey, actually, you're right. You're totally right. I am absolutely an idiot. I mean, I totally agree with you now. now I've seen the light now that you've posted that article that I'm not going to read. I totally have seen the light. You've totally convinced me of your position. I am an idiot. You're totally right. That That almost never happens. You know, when people are insulted, they dig into their position. Right. They double down on their position, even when they might intellectually know that they're wrong. They need to protect their reputation. They don't want to look stupid. That's why those kind of arguments almost never work. But what Christians are called to do is not to do that so much as to show people the beauty and the goodness of God. How does God convince us to become a Christian? Does God force us to become Christians kicking and screaming? He does not do that. How did you become a Christian? And the answer is God opened your eyes to see his beauty. God showed you his light and his love and he opened your heart and he convinced you, changed your will. And you saw the beauty of Jesus and you with all your heart want to know him. That's what Peter is saying. Peter is saying Christians live like that. Show people the beauty of Jesus. It's not so much your force, but your life and your heart and your actions that speak so loud. In the context of marriage, what Peter is saying is that we're called uh, to le- uh, to to submit ourselves, especially in insignificant matters. I do a lot of marriage counseling, and I counsel married couples who are having difficulty in marriage. I'm doing that a lot lately, and I ask couples who are arguing with each other, what are you arguing about? What specifically are you arguing about? Almost always the couple says stupid stuff. And I press them, and they're like, I'm almost... Embarrassed to tell you what we argue about. It's so stupid. It's so insignificant. And so many times in marriages, we argue about things that really don't matter. And what Peter is saying, let those things go. Submit to each other. Thomas Schreiner says this. He says, submission is not to avoid conflict nor to manipulate your husbands. A godly woman submits because her trust is in God. It's not to get our own way. It's not to manipulate because ultimately our trust in God and we're only women are only wives are only called to submit in ways that glorify God for God's glory, not for any other reason because we trust in the Lord because he is our glory. Christians have a new way with power, not insisting on our own way, not by brute force, not taking hold of that. But this is the second new way to relate, not, a new way to relate to power, but secondly, to beauty. Peter wants Christians to live distinctively in the culture that they live, to have a whole different dynamic with the way we think about power and specifically beauty. This is what Peter says in chapter 3, verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Peter lived in a Roman culture. He writes in a Roman culture in which external beauty was of great importance, especially to females. The the ideal Roman woman had flawless pale skin, stylized hair, and large Large, bright eyes. Because not every woman had that genetic disposition, they wore a lot of cosmetics. In fact, Roman w- women, uh, they applied all kinds of cosmetics. They had face masks. In fact, you can wa- uh, read ancient recipes for these face masks. One of those recipes was the sweat of sheep and they bottled that up. Apparently they sold it. And that was a pre-mask before they put on their makeup. What was their makeup? We know that some of their makeup was to get that flawless white skin. So they wore things like chalk, white chalk. They wore white lead as foundation. And it's crazy because even in ancient times, they knew lead was poisonous. But yet women still wore lead that they knew was poisonous. That's how much pressure they were under to to meet the societal expectations of beauty they wore all kinds of uh they they went wild with the hairstyles you can see in museums today first century busts of Roman women with very ornate elaborate hairstyles locks, elaborate braids they were also really fashionable your fashion was an indicator of your status, of your wealth. Wealthy Roman woman also wore things like gold snake bracelets. You can see these in museums today that were very ornate, that wrapped around your wrists. Also a status symbol, status of wealth. So in this backdrop of cosmetics, jewelry, and fashion, Peter says, hold up. He says, hold up. Notice that he just doesn't flatly ban these things. He Talks about a difference in focus. Bible actually doesn't ban uh, fashion or cosmetics. In fact, Proverbs 31 talks about the model godly woman is dressed in purple and in fine linen. So it's not like the Bible says, don't don't wear makeup or don't follow fashions. But Peter's saying don't focus on these things. One interesting thing about Christian women in the first century was that they were known to not wear makeup. They were known by that fact. Christian women said, you know, the poison on my face, I'm good without that. I don't need to put poison on my face. I don't need that cheap sweat. I'm good without that. I'm opting out of that. You can have that to yourself. My face, my my olive skin—I love that. Actually, <laughs> that's the way God made me. Was wouldn't that be such a relief for a Christian woman to to opt out of all these fashion standards? To say, no, I don't need that poison on my face. I don't need these elaborate garments to show off and flaunt my wealth. I'm good. I don't need that. Think about. We live in a culture today that's also beauty obsessed, just as beauty obsessed, if not more, just as image conscience. No matter how much progress women make in our society, so much of a measure of a woman is often her beauty, her thinness, her hair, her clothing. Think about the most influential women on social media. What do they look like? They are beautiful. They have perfect skin. They have these contradictory things. They're thin yet athletic somehow. You know, they have all of these things. The most popular bloggers, I was reading an article about the most popular bloggers on the Internet, and they are most often women, mothers, who have these seemingly perfect families. All their kids are dressed in immaculate matching outfits. They live in a home straight out of Dwell magazine. That's immaculate. They have beautiful kids, a perfect husband, and they have professionally taken photographs. and they blog about that. The home is never a mess. It's always perfect. How do they get that way? You know, the more you are on social media, studies will tell you the more depressed you get. Because who can live up to those standards? Who can live up to the standards of beauty, of what our home looks like? How, how how can we live up to those standards? Peter says it's not wrong to be fashionable. It's not wrong to do all of these things, but our focus has to change. We need to focus on things of ultimate importance. One thing that's nice about this pandemic, there are, on, there are only a few things that's nice about this pandemic. But one thing that's nice about the pandemic is that uh, a lot of people can work from home. I love working from home. One of the benefits from working from home is you can wear whatever you want. Don't you love that benefit? Uh, retailers are saying they're, they are still selling top clothes, but bottom clothes like pants, they're not selling those. You know, people are going to Zoom meetings. They're wearing some nice outfit, but they're wearing some shorts, some ath- athleisure wear, <laughs> wearing whatever they want. And I love that. I love what, wearing whatever I want. It's liberating, isn't it? Not having to worry about clothes is liberating. You don't need to focus on that. You can let your let that go. It doesn't have to be so important. And what Peter is saying is that, sure, clothing, fashion, makeup, but don't focus on that. What What should we focus on then? He flips it. He says beauty is actually important. That's what Peter says. Beauty is absolutely important, but the right kind of beauty. This is what he says in verse four, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with what? With the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Peter says beauty is very important, but you need a beauty that is imperishable, that doesn't gray or wrinkle, that doesn't need cosmetics or plastic surgery. You need a beauty that's going to get more beautiful, that's lasting. You need a beauty that God sees, that God is attracted to. What is that beauty? He says, it's a quiet and gentle spirit. It's the hidden person of the heart. You know, in 1 Samuel 16, Samuel is looking for the next king. And he has all of these preconceived ideas of what a king looks like. He is tall. He is strong. He's built. He is charismatic. Looking at all of these external criteria and God says to Samuel, no, that's not what I'm looking for. He says in 1 Samuel 16, 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but what? But the Lord looks on the heart. God says, I don't care about what people look like outside. I'm not looking at that. I look at the heart. That's what I see. That's what I'm concerned about. The inner person is the person and the thing we should be focused on. In verse 4, Peter calls Christian women to have a gentle and quiet spirit. What does that mean? Gentle and quiet spirit. You know, that's not actually a feminine attribute. Jesus himself describes himself in that term, in those terms. When Jesus, in the few times he described how he is, he called himself gentle and humble in heart. Being quite, having a gentle and quiet spirit is about being patient with people like Jesus was. It's not being all about yourself, but being about him. There was a peace about Jesus, even in midst of the chaos. That's a gentle and quiet spirit. Verse 5, Peter says that when you have that spirit, you emulate Sarah. She's, she was the wife of Abraham who followed Abraham, left her home, supported this mission that God was building a new nation. She was a woman of great faith. She's one of the most beautiful women in the Bible. And you are her child, a daughter. Verse, verse 5, Peter says that we are to emulate her and to have that spirit. Some people have an ugly spirit, an ugly inner spirit. They might be beautiful externally but have an ugly spirit. Complaining, angry, bitter, anxious, jealous, tearing people down. you are constantly unhappy, and it taints the relationships we're in. It poisons marriages. But the spirit that God desires is quiet and gentle. It ex- accepts all that God has for us. It's a, it's a spirit of gratitude. It's a spirit of peace that when our spouses are near us, they experience the peace of God. They feel supported. How do we get that? In Psalm 23, it says that God is our good shepherd and he makes us lie down in green pastures. One of the things that God does for us to get that spirit is he makes us lie down. You know, this pandemic is a season which God is making many of us lie down, that we were so busy doing so many things. He makes us lie down in his presence. He feeds us. It says that when we lie down with our shepherd, we realize that, uh, There is no evil, that we will fear no evil when we do that. We understand God is our king. He loves us. He's trying to nourish us. Uh, Even though we walk through the valley of shadow of death, we, we will fear no evil. Some of us are in that valley of shadow of death. But even in the midst of that, he promises that he is with us, that he is our shepherd. And we need to spend time in his presence, experiencing that. Peter says, focus on that inner spirit of gentleness and quietness, because that's beautiful in God's sight. That's going to bring life to, you, to your relationships. Some of us bring into our marriages and our relationship anxiety. We bring stress into our marriage. We bring complaints. We bring all kinds of bitterness and rage. We bring in the past into our relationships. And it poisons everything. It makes everybody anxious, your family, your work, your friends. You're bringing all of that negative anxiety and stress and bitterness into those relationships. But what if, and instead of that, you brought the peace of Jesus into your relationships? You you brought the quietness of knowing God's presence into your marriage, How would that change your marriage? How would that change your workplace? We live in a time where there's so much noise. So many people are yelling at the top of their lungs at each other, and nobody's hearing each other. But imagine if you had a quiet and gentle spirit in midst of that. How precious would that be? How much would you change your marriage, your relationships, your workplace? How much peace would you bring in? That's what God calls us to. God calls us to a new way uh, with ourselves, a power of beauty, of inner beauty. But here's the last thing. He calls us to have a new way to love. Uh, what's interesting, if you look at first, the end of 1 Peter 2-3, to three, is that Peter spends a lot of time talking to slaves. We ex- Explained that whole idea last week. You can listen to that if you ha- haven't heard that sermon. He spends a lot of time talking to women, but he spends exactly zero amount of time on slave owners. And he actually only spends one sentence on husbands. Why is that? He's spending so much time on one class of people and almost no time on another class. Why is that? Well, one idea is that Peter was written explicitly for people who feel oppressed People who feel down, Peter's trying to lift them up because that's God's heart. So he actually does not address slave owners at all. And he only addresses husbands once. And it's actually only one sentence. And it gives us a context then for these power dynamics and what God's where God's heart is and what he's trying to do. But when he finally addresses husbands, this is what he says. Verse 7. Likewise, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. There's a lot there. Peter calls husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way. He first calls them not to lead, but he first calls them to, to understand, to have empathy. He's talking to a... A woman who was telling me when she first got married to her husband, they would get home and she would talk to him about how stressful her job and work was, and the husband would automatically go into this problem-solving mode. Like, have you tried this? Have you talked to her about that? Have you tried these methods? And she'd get very upset and frustrated because she's like, I'm not trying to get some – I'm not trying to get my problem solved by you. I just want you to listen. Look me in the eyes. And listen to what I'm saying. And took him a while to realize she just wants to be heard. She just wants to be understood. Husbands are called first to do that, to, to empathy, to understand how their wives are wired. To care for them. It says that husbands are to show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. The weaker vessel, what does that mean? This is some patriarchal power dynamic again. And weaker does not mean we're going to get to this spiritually weaker because women are co-heirs. They're co-equals. It's not about that. Most commentators think this is about physical weakness. Women are physically weaker. I think that is definitely implied. Uh, Karen Jobs. So one of the things I try to do these days is I try to read literature commentary scholarly articles by women and minorities i'm making a concerted effort to do that more and more one of my favorite commentaries is by a woman named karen Jobs. and she says that this weaker vessel is not just about physical weakness but also in a sense of social entitlement and empowerment Job's is saying that women are weaker not so much, not just in the physical way, but socially. They are disempowered socially. And she says that means men cannot run roughshod over their wives or they will not be heard by God. And she's saying it is not just physically, but socially. They're often relegated Disempowered, so men are called to lift them up, actually, to honor them, to listen, to empathize with them, and bless them. That's a radical thing in the first century. That's a radical thing even now. That's the calling of men. They are to see their wives as co heirs. In Roman times, only sons were heirs, only sons, only men. But Peter says, no, this, that's not the case with God. Wives are co heirs. They will inherit everything alongside you. You're not the first in line. They are your equals. And men are to realize that about their women, even though the society does not. Men are to, to know that. Men are called to honor their wives. Men, are, how are you honoring your wives during this pandemic? That's a command, by the way. Men are commanded to honor their wives. In literal and practical ways to care for them, to lift them up, to bless them. Paul says, Peter says that he describes love not so much sexually, how our culture does, not even emotionally, but he sees love in terms of empathy, in terms of honor, in terms of sacrifice. Peter says that when husbands honor their wives and one of the reasons for it is in verse seven, so that your prayers may not be hindered. One of the reasons that why our relationship and specifically marriage relationships are so pivotal is that it's it's is because when our relationships are broken. Including it's difficult to focus on anything else, including our walk with God, I know that with me when I'm having trouble In my marriage, I can't do anything else. I can't do ministry. I can't pray. I can't even be a good parent because my central relationship is broken. Therefore, it's hard to focus on anything else. One of the reasons we should work on our marriages is that your spouse is your chief chief spiritual encourager. Your spouse is your prayer partner and grace giver. So if you want to grow your relationship with God, grow your marriage. If your marriage is flourishing, it's going to help grow your relationship with God because that's going to be a grace-giving, life-giving thing. If your marriage or your key relationships are broken, it's going to break everything else, even your relationship with God. Those two things go hand in hand, your marriage And your relationship with God, your relationship to others and your relationships to God, they're deeply intertwined. They come together. We talked about these new dynamics that Christians are called to in relationship. Uh, We're called to submission, to inward beauty, to honoring and loving the other. And ultimately, all of these things are exemplified in Jesus. And I use Jesus as a key thing in all of these things, these dynamics. I want to conclude with that. Ultimately, in Jesus, all these things come together. In fact, marriage and Jesus, uh, in Ephesians 5, Paul says marriage is actually a key way to understand God's love for us in Jesus. That Jesus is actually our groom and the church is the bride, and all of these principles are then exemplified in Jesus. We talked about this idea of humbly submitting yourselves. And it's not a humiliating thing because Jesus himself humbled himself. He was God, but humbled himself. Followed the plan of the father. We talked about this idea of inward beauty. You know, what's interesting is in Isaiah 53, it describes Jesus and it says that he had no outward form of beauty. Jesus was nothing to look at. All those portraits that you see of Jesus, they are definitely not true. Because Jesus, according to Isaiah 53, was nothing to look at. He was not attractive at all. He was not beautiful at all. It says that when people looked at Jesus, they turned their face away. They didn't want to look at Jesus. He was nothing to look at. But Jesus was the most beautiful person who ever lived. He had a, a beautiful soul. He loved people. He was the great healer who spoke to the outcast. Welcome, Duran. Who humbled himself. He used none of his miracles and his power on himself, only to bless others. He ultimately gave of his life as a substitute sacrifice. The key way you will change is by seeing the beauty of Jesus. That's the key way God's going to change you. Until Jesus becomes beautiful to you, you will never change. The key way God changes us and first takes us into his kingdom and also grows us is that we have to see Jesus as the most beautiful thing. He's, he's His name is the most beautiful name. His life is the most beautiful thing. And we also have to see that God sees us as beautiful. We are his beautiful beloved children. That he sees us as his bride, that his heart skips a beat when he thinks of us. Up in heaven, if God had an iPhone 12,000, he would have a picture on his home screen. You know, he looks upon us. He delights in us. Do you think that God delights in you? You know, you are his bride. You are his beloved. That's how God refers to you. He loves you so much. And the way you will change is by realizing that. And when you receive Jesus and see him as beautiful, it's going to change all the ways you think about power, all the things that you think of as beautiful, all the ways that you treat other people and how you honor and love them. All of those things changes as Jesus becomes more beautiful to you. During this this season, There's a lot of things happening. This is There's a lot of pain. You know, one of the things about Jesus and the cross, it tells us, is that pain and love are intertwined. They always go together. There's no love without pain. And this season, there's a lot of pain happening. There's a lot of pain in our world, in our country. And this is specifically a season God calls you to love. Love, especially when it's painful. Love people deeply, sacrificially. And when you do that, when you have an eye uh, on God as you do that, God's going to soften you and change you, uh, especially in your homes. Your homes are more important than ever, not only because you're spending more time there, is that because your home needs to be a sanctuary from all the chaos, all the noise, all the craziness outside. Your home needs to be a sacred space more than ever. Your are you're. you're a marriage needs to be more sacred than ever. Your friendships need to be beautiful because everything else is ugly. So keep your home, keep your marriage, keep your relationships tight and beautiful. It's a refuge in these crazy times. Ask God, God, give me a heart and spirit to beautify my relationships, my marriage. Help it to be a refuge in these difficult times because it th- these difficult times are temporary Help us to remember we're on our way to our true home, a true father. We are his true bride, and we're getting there. Please join me in prayer. Father, we give you thanks for this time. There's so many things to to think about and stress about. And help us to simplify during this time to say it is all about you. And first, Lord, we are called to our marriages. We're called to our families. We're called to our friends. And I pray, God, especially in these difficult times, that you would protect our marriages, protect our families, protect our friendships, protect our apartments that we live in with roommates, protect that space. Because more than ever, we need him. We need those relationships to be good and pure and holy. So I pray, God, that you would use this season to sanctify them. Pray, God, that the that we would be willing to pain painfully sacrifice, especially during this time, because we need uh we need to, to to experience uh something greater and more beautiful. So I pray that you'd minister to us. Pray that you'd minister to us along the way. All of us are very broken people in a very broken world, and we need to show each other grace. And we're thankful that you show us grace, that you love your sinful broken bride, that you purify and wash her, that your your delight is upon us. Help us never to forget that. Give us your hope of heaven. Would it be ever so present and precious? Pray, God, that on our way home, you would give us strength to endure. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.